0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University.
0: Welcome to another netcast from the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I am Kelly Brownell, the director of the Rudd Center and professor of psychology and epidemiology and public health. And I'm delighted today to welcome Professor Barry Levin. Um, Barry is professor of neurology and neuroscience at the New Jersey Medical School and also uh, works at the VA Medical Center in East Orange, New Jersey. And Barry has been working for many years on regulation of body weight, on animal models of nutrition and obesity, and has been one of the pioneers in doing physiological studies with animals that address very important questions about homeostatic mechanisms, the regulation of body weight, and the like. And Barry, I've always fancied you one of the most creative people in answering interesting questions and also being able to translate what's really very sophisticated scientific work into language that people can understand. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Also, I'd like to remind the audience that the Rudd Center produces a number of netcasts on various issues related to food and food policy. And they're available at www.yalerudcenter.org, and I'll mention that at the end of the the netcast as well. So, Barry, let me start with a, a your explanation of a concept, and that's the concept of set point. Um, this word gets bandied about a lot in scientific circles, and also out there in the general public in the context of regulation of the body weight regulation of body weight. So, I appreciate your explanation of what the concept means, and also your take on is it a, a viable concept and just where you think it might go.
1: Well, originally it was an engineering concept, and uh, it's been applied to body weight regulation, uh, but it's pretty controversial uh, within that context. Uh, my way of thinking about this is to uh, make an analogy to a thermostat. Um, most people think that a, th- a set point should be fixed, but it's very clear in body weight regulation that a set point can move, Uh, But body weight is regulated around a particular uh, body weight which starts wherever you are when you either overeat or undereat. Uh, And in most situations, particularly in animals where we control the variables, uh, if you underfeed an animal for a period of time uh, and then allow it to eat uh, as much as it wants, it will go right back to where it was. Similarly, if you overfeed it uh, uh, by giving it a lot of extra food, uh, it will eventually come back to where it was, depending somewhat on its genes. But it's movable, and that's why I make the analogy to a thermostat, uh, except we don't understand exactly what resets that thermostat. Uh, But if you uh, have somebody who's prone to be obese and they overeat and become obese uh, fairly slowly, uh, they don't go back down. It's as if somebody took and moved the thermostat from 70 degrees to 72 or 74 degrees, and that's where they'll regulate their body weight. And we call that a set point. Other people call it a settling point. Um, we also don't know where it's regulated. It's probably not one place. My prejudice is that it's in the brain, uh, but it also uh, probably has to do with the interaction between the brain and the body. So if you take the animals and give them or
0: give them access to a high-fat diet, let's say, or, or just overfeed them so they gain weight, you mentioned that they would then later come back down to a normal weight and that that's evidence of this idea of a set point. Now, humans don't seem to show that same tendency as you alluded to. They tend to gain weight if given access to a high-fat, high-sugar diet that exists like in American culture. Why don't people come down to a normal weight, do you believe? Well,
1: <clears throat> excuse me. at least in our work with animals, uh, that uh, depends on your genetic predisposition. So we've bred animals, the uh, rats that... Uh, we know are prone to become obese. And in fact, when we overfeed them, if we give them increase the density of their diet, put a little extra fat and some sugar into it, they overeat, but not massively. And they essentially uh, escape the regulatory bounds uh, of of the systems that normally would control body weight. And they go up. And those animals never come back down. Uh, If you overfeed them by giving something that really, they really like, highly palatable, liquid diet. They'll overeat much more, but as soon as you change the palatability, then they will come back down. So there are different sets of rules for different kinds of diets, and it really has to also to do with how rapidly the weight is gained. Uh, and there have been studies done in humans as well, paying them to overeat, uh, and you really do have to p- pay people to overeat as many as 1,000 calories a day. And most of those people come back down when they overeat massively like that, uh, 1,000 calories a day. Uh, so it it's not a blanket statement for all situations. Okay. I know you've commented on the
0: issue of the obesity epidemic and uh, treatment versus prevention. What are your
1: thoughts on that? Well, We have a very bad record of treating obesity once it develops, and the usual figure is that there's a 90% recidivism rate. Almost everybody can lose weight, and most people who have a chronic weight problem will tell you that they've lost hundreds of pounds during their lifetime, and the reason is that they regain all the weight. And so probably 90% of people who are overweight or obese and go on a diet regain that weight within a period of six to 12 months. Uh, And so it... Although people think that this is a psychological problem, there are very few psychological problems that have that bad a, uh, a treatment relapse rate. Uh, there's something, I believe, metabolically driving people to regain this weight. This concept. This is where the concept of set point comes in—an uh, interaction with your genes and some other extrinsic factors. Uh, so that once you become obese, if you have the right genotype for it, and uh, two thirds of people who are obese seem to have a genetic basis for their obesity, uh, it's very unlikely that over your lifetime you're going to be able to keep off uh, that weight. Uh, so, in to my way of thinking, the best way to uh, treat obesity is to prevent it. So when you talk about two-thirds of overweight people have a genetic tendency,
0: does that translate into the fact that obesity is a genetic problem? And how do you figure how the genes interact with the environment?
1: Yeah, well, we, we talk about an obesity epidemic that's occurred in the last 20, 30 years, and clearly the genes haven't changed. Um, and so that we've had a genetic... Uh, predisposition to become obese in our uh, genome for uh, probably centuries may be one of the things that's helped us survive over the years and something has changed in our environment that has taken that uh, genetic blueprint and allowed the people with a predisposition to become obese to become obese and the problem is once they do they get stuck at that higher level in the past uh, we had to work hard to find our food Uh, in many cases food was intermittently available um, and so we expended as much as we uh, we ate. Now we have food that's readily available uh, without having to do anything more than drive to the uh, drive-through lane or go to the refrigerator. Uh, there are probably a lot of other causes, but. Um, we still have a lot of lean people around. At least a third of, of uh, the population in the United States or more is, is lean. Um, they probably are genetically lean people. We, we don't understand them any better than we do the people who are obese. Right. So
0: let's return to your idea about preventing obesity. I know some of your uh, work, especially your recent work, has focused on feeding of animals in um, the pregnancy period and shortly
1: thereafter. Tell us about some of those studies. They're very interesting. Right. Well, we've, we've been focusing over the last few years on the perinatal period, and there are ep- epidemiologic studies in humans uh, showing uh, w- one of two apparently contradictory uh, findings. One is that after World War II uh, in in uh, the Netherlands and also in Germany, there was a famine, and children who were in the womb during that period of time uh, and the, the period of, ge- of, of gestation is not quite clear, were, had a much higher rate of obesity uh, as adults uh, if their mothers were uh, underfed during pregnancy. And this is also true of some third world countries. So that undernutrition during pregnancy seems to predispose to uh, obesity when nutrition is made readily available in the uh, postpartum period. On the other hand, there are a number of studies that suggest that obesity uh, in the mother during pregnancy also predisposes uh, individuals to become obese. And so we've tried to use uh, rats that we've uh, bred specifically to have an obese genotype or a lean genotype, we call them diet-induced obese or diet-resistant animals, uh, to study these uh, uh, sorts of uh, Situations, And what we find is that if your mother is obese during pregnancy and lactation and you have an obese genotype, you're going to become more obese as a rat, um, even if you don't eat a high-fat diet than if your mother was lean. If your mother was lean during that period and you're never exposed to a high-fat diet, you're fine. If you have a a lean genotype and your mother is obese during pregnancy and lactation, it almost doesn't matter. Uh, You'll still stay lean. However, if we take you as a rat uh, right from birth and uh, you have a lean genotype and put you with a mother who has an obese genotype and has been made obese on a high-fat diet, so this is the ultimate obesogenic environment, you will become obese as an adult, uh, even though you have a lean genotype, being raised by a, a mother... For those critical three weeks in a, in a rat, that's, that's what uh, lactation is, uh, will make you more prone to obesity. So that's all kind of bad news. Uh, it, it doesn't work the other way. If you have an obese genotype and I put you with a, in a lean environment after birth, it doesn't keep you from getting obese. So it all, only goes uh, in, in the wrong direction uh, as far as obesity goes. Well, it certainly shows how important those, the
0: early life period is. Um, you know I know the work is with with animals, but I mean, given what you pointed out with humans, the starvation studies, and then the studies showing obese parents have obese children very persuasive, and it shows how important it might be to consider nutrition during those early times.
1: Absolutely. We always are, are careful to try to extrapolate from uh, animal studies to humans, but I think there's enough firm epidemiologic evidence to suggest, in fact, we model our studies on the human situations that we know exist from epidemiology so that we can test hypotheses about it. So these these didn't come out of uh, the, the, uh, the air. Uh, these models were derived so that we could test hypotheses about By environmental interactions.
0: Let me ask a question that delves into evolutionary biology a little bit. You know, this is very well known to you and to others who have done these kind of studies, but most people may not know what happens to laboratory animals when they're given a diet that mimics what humans might eat. You know, what people have called a supermarket or cafeteria diet, where you you know, rearrange the composition of the diet to come close to what humans might eat. It's very interesting what happens to animals under those conditions, and it would be interesting to hear you explain that.
1: Right. It it depends somewhat on the diet's composition. If uh, the so-called cafeteria diet has a lot of variety in it, and so animals of any sort tend to overeat on that. Um, there are some strains of animals that are much more prone to become obese. And within certain outbred populations, which is what the human population is, that is, they don't have uh, all the same genes, within a given population, some of those animals will, when given that diet, uh, overeat and become obese. And others tend to regulate pretty well and stay lean, just like in the human situation. Um, and Uh, This seems to be, again, an environment-by-gene interaction. Uh, There are some strains that are highly inbred, and those, even within those populations, occasionally what you'll find is there's some very good examples of uh, animals that all have the same genes, but when you give them a diet, uh, such as a cafeteria diet or a high-fat diet, there's a widespread of weight gain in that population. And we're still try, struggling to understand that. We believe that some of these factors that occur in the perinatal environment uh, may be involved in that sort of uh, thing, but it's a really striking phenomenon that uh, has just recently begun to be studied.
0: So to put this in some context, tell us how much weight some animals can really gain when they're given access to this more human-type diet. I mean, can animals, Gain weight by, I mean, 20% additional weight? Do they double their weight? I mean, what?
1: Does well, if it's a highly palatable diet, they can double their weight. Uh, now, most, we, we work with rats and, and uh, mice sometimes, and they gain weight all through their lives. And so it's a, a bit of a moving target. Uh, it's a little harder to extrapolate to humans, but you can, if, if you give them a really highly palatable diet, we use a liquid diet, uh, they particularly like chocolate, and they will just overeat. Uh, with apparently no bounds, and within a period of a month or so, they can double their, their body weight uh, by 60 or 70 or 80 percent above what uh, a comparable animal would do on a low-fat, uh, non-palatable diet.
0: And When you see that sort of a strong biological drive, because obviously there's no marketing to these rats or any sort of influences that might lead humans to eat on a diet like this, when you see such a powerful effect. Uh, it makes me wonder when you think about the, our children being exposed to a diet like that, how we can be surprised when they gain weight. Because presumably they would have a, a biology that would crave those kind of foods just like the animals would.
1: Well, absolutely. Uh, palatability, we, we tend to think about two systems that regulate body weight. One is so called homeostatic, where there are, the whole idea about set point fits in pretty well with that, where there are negative feedback systems. Uh, when you gain more uh, weight, you make more of a hormone that tells the brain you're getting fatter, uh, and it tends to turn off your appetite and exp- uh, leads you to expend more energy. But these other systems that involve with palatability and reward and, and humans, the social situations uh, that you find yourself in, these things all promote f- uh, food intake that completely override any of these homeostatic systems. Um, and you can take that right into your fast food chain and see how that, that's operant. Uh, people will eat way beyond their metabolic needs when they're given these uh, very highly palatable foods, particularly when they're cheap um, at, at, on top of that. You know,
0: you've made the, a very interesting point distinguishing between the need for food and desire for food and have worked out some of the biological systems that might be implicated
1: here. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the, the it's ones that are, have to do with the need uh, are fairly tightly regulated. Uh, and they have, as I said, these, these positive and negative feedback systems from the body that tell the brain how much fat there is in the body, basically. And that's the, probably the major regulated part of uh, our body composition. Uh, that's what goes up and down when we uh, gain and lose body weight. Uh, we lose a little bit of lean body mass, muscle and, and protein, but most of it is fat. And, and again, that's, that system is pretty tightly regulated. However, if you have the genes for it, um, you can slip under the system that monitors that uh, by eating that extra couple of uh, calories or usually 100 calories a day or 50 calories a day, which over a year can lead to several pounds. So the monitoring system is good, but it, it has certain bounds. And in our animals that we've raised to be uh, obesity prone, they tend to have uh, much more slop at the high end. They don't monitor uh, upward uh, deviations uh, as well. And so those homeostatic systems are designed pretty well to keep us within bounds. Uh, But then you take these other non-homeostatic systems, where you add in these very rewarding properties, and some of the same parts of the brain that are involved in that are involved in drug addiction and alcohol substance abuse, um, and, and people have started to try to make an analogy there. It's it's not a complete analogy, but many of the same brain systems are involved, and that system completely overrides all of these homeostatic cues. Uh, so it's it, if you have the wrong genes and you let yourself, put yourself in that situation, you can find yourself on an upward trajectory from which you can't recover um, if you allow yourself to overeat in that situation.
0: Well, it shows how um, how much, um, I guess, restraint it might take to control the environment under those circumstances because food is so readily available. I mean, you mentioned earlier the drive-in window, but. You figure in the low cost of unhealthy food, the relentless marketing of foods, uh, high, in, high in energy density, um, large portions, all these sort of things really conspire to make a pretty difficult environment
1: for people. Absolutely, and it's, it's a disaster for, with our children particularly, and this is why we have started to focus our research predominantly on the perinatal and early childhood period because uh, we're now seeing an epidemic of childhood obesity Uh, that we've never seen before, and this is also becoming associated with type 2 diabetes, which is a major risk factor for stroke and heart disease and hypertension and a number of other factors. So we really need to get in there early on, identify the factors that are promoting this, and, of course, we know some of them. We've just been talking about them, Um, but also the social situation that the uh, children find themselves in, uh, cultural uh, uh, kinds of things add to this as well. One thing I'd like to ask um, is
0: about the prospect of the pharmaceutical industry coming up with cures for obesity. And at a talk I heard you give earlier today, you mentioned that the industries, uh, collectively, the companies have come up with vast numbers of leads, but nothing has really produced very exciting results. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the industry's ability to really help with this problem?
1: Well, I'd I'd like to remain optimistic about it. So far, uh, they really have been unsuccessful in finding a drug which lowers body weight significantly, uh, and right now we're mostly focused on weight loss to prevent the uh, comorbidities of obesity, such as diabetes and heart disease. Even if we could just do that, we'd be happy. There are a couple of drugs out there, new drugs that uh, do that, but all of them have some side effect. Uh, Part of the problem is that our brains are wired to preserve a certain body weight. And uh, so these drugs have to fool the brain uh, when you lose weight into thinking that that's the appropriate set point. And we've done some studies with uh, one of the drugs that's currently on the market, has been for a while, uh, showing that it it literally lowers the set point. Uh, As long as you take the drug, the brain thinks it's perfectly normal. As soon as you stop the drug, you go right back up. But at best... Uh, The best drugs we've ever made are only giving us about a 5 or 10% uh, weight loss. Uh, That may be enough to prevent the medical complications of obesity. It's not doing much for uh, the aesthetics of obesity. Uh, It is likely that we will need more than one drug to lower body weight by more. The big problem is that most of these drugs have uh, unacceptable side effects. Uh, They don't affect everybody. They don't work in everybody. Um, but it's the side effects that have been the limiting factor uh, in many of the de- development of many of these drugs.
0: You know, I've heard you use the term redundant systems to describe the way the body may respond to a drug like this. And I gather the idea is that if the body is so determined to keep weight at a certain level and some drug comes along and manages to fool it one way, the body will ultimately outsmart the drug in some way and come up with a system. Is that pretty care-
1: Yeah, if you look at the way the brain is organized, which is my particular interest, um, most of the systems in the brain involved in body weight regulation are ones that push us to gain weight. We call them anabolic, uh, increase food intake and uh, decrease energy expenditure, so to add calories. And there are many, many systems. and We keep it, discovering more and more every day built into the brain for long-term body weight regulation. There are many fewer that are there to restrict our ability to gain weight, so-called catabolic systems that put a break on the system. And so the, the pharmaceutical companies have focused on those because they seem to be much more restricted in number. Uh, the problem is that the anabolic systems, uh, it, without them, we would die. We basically wouldn't eat. And so it's hard to fool Mother Nature uh, consistently and uh, over a long period of time. Let me ask
0: one final question. Um, you, I admire how cautious you are in taking the results from animal studies and applying them to humans. But given that, what do you think we can learn from your studies and others that ultimately that may be helpful in preventing obesity, especially
1: in children? Well, I think that the most important thing that, that we've identified is that this early formative period, particularly during the period of time when Uh, the the central nervous system, and particularly these systems that we're interested in that control body weight are forming, Environmental perturbations can have a major impact on the way the brain is wired. Uh, We think about a lot of other things that can affect development of the brain. But uh, when you think that high-fat diets or the presence of obesity in in your mother can change the way your brain is wired, uh, there's no reason to believe that that isn't true in human beings. Uh, Again, I I tend to be pretty cautious about this. But we don't have any reason to believe that, that that can't happen in human beings. So that this early developmental period, as early as being in the womb, we have to pay very careful attention to what we put in our mouths uh, during pregnancy and lactation as well as during early childhood because it can literally affect the way the brain develops and not in a good uh, way as far as obesity and diabetes are concerned. Thank you. Um, Our Rudd
0: Center guest today was Professor Barry Levin, Professor of Neurology and Neuroscience at the New Jersey Medical School and the VA Medical Center in East Orange, New Jersey. Barry, thank you so much for doing such important work over the years and for inspiring us today and joining us in this netcast. My pleasure. And I'd like to remind the listeners that this was brought to you by the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. Uh, Please feel free to visit our website, which is www.yaleruddcenter.org. There's a great deal of information on the website, a free email newsletter to subscribe to, a blog, and lots of information on food and food policy. And also this netcast and others will appear on the website. Thank you very much.